The Secret Doctrine, Volume 2, by Helena Blavatsky. Read by Graham Dunlop. A production by Adult Brain Audiobook Publishing. Modern science insists upon the doctrine of evolution. So do human reason and the secret doctrine. And the idea is corroborated by the ancient legends and myths, and even by the Bible itself, when it is read between the lines. We see a flower slowly developing from a bud, and the bud from its seed. But whence the latter, with all its predetermined program of physical transformation, and its invisible, therefore spiritual, forces which gradually develop its form, color, and odor? The word evolution speaks for itself. The germ of the present human race must have pre-existed in the parent of this race, as the seed in which lies hidden the flower of next summer, was developed in the capsule of its parent flower. The parent may be but slightly different, but it still differs from its future progeny. The antediluvian ancestors of the present elephant and lizard were, perhaps, the mammoth and the plesiosaurus. Why should not the progenitors of our human race have been the giants of the Vedas, the Voluspa, and the Book of Genesis? While it is positively absurd to believe the transformation of species to have taken place according to some of the more materialistic views of the evolutionists, it is but natural to think that each genus, beginning with the mollusks and ending with the monkey man, has modified from its own primordial and distinctive form. Isis unveiled, I, 152-3. Preliminary Notes on the archaic stanzas and the four prehistoric continents. The stanzas, with the commentaries thereon, in this volume, are drawn from the same archaic records as the stanzas on cosmogony in Volume 1. As far as possible, a verbatim translation is given. But some of the stanzas are too obscure to be understood without explanation. And therefore, as in Volume 1, they are first given in full, as they stand, and then when taken verse by verse with their commentaries. An attempt is made to make them clearer by words added in footnotes in anticipation of the fuller explanation of the commentary. As regards the evolution of mankind, the secret doctrine postulates three new propositions, which stand in direct antagonism to modern science, as well as to current religious dogmas. It teaches a the simultaneous evolution of seven human groups on seven different portions of our globe, b. the birth of the astral before the physical body, the former being a model for the latter, and c. that man in this round preceded every mammalian, the anthropoids included, in the animal kingdom. The secret doctrine is not alone in speaking of primeval men born simultaneously on the seven divisions of our globe. In the divine pimander of Hermes Trismegistus, we find the same seven primeval men, evolving from nature and the heavenly man, in the collective sense of the word, namely from the creative spirits, and in the fragments of Chaldean tablets, collected by George Smith, on which is inscribed the Babylonian legend of creation. In the first column of the Kutha tablet, seven human beings with the faces of ravens, 
that is to say, of black, swarthy complexions, whom the seven great gods created, are mentioned, or as explained in lines 16, 17, and 18. In the midst of the earth they grew up and became great, and increased in number, seven kings, brothers of the same family. These are the seven kings of Edom, to whom reference is made in the Kabbalah. The first race, which was imperfect, that is to say, was born before the balance, sexes existed, and which was therefore destroyed. Seven kings, brethren, appeared and begot children. Six hundred in number were their peoples. The god Nergas, death, destroyed them. How did he destroy them? By bringing into equilibrium, or balance, those who did not yet exist. They were destroyed as a race by being merged in their own progeny, by exudation. That is to say, the sexless race reincarnated in the potentially bisexual, the latter in the androgynes, these again in the sexual, the later third race. Were the tablets less mutilated, they would be found to contain word for word the same account as is given in the archaic records and in Hermes, at least as regards the fundamental facts, if not as regards minute details, for Hermes is a good deal disfigured by mistranslations. It is quite certain that the seeming supernaturalism of these teachings, although allegorical, is so diametrically opposed to the dead-letter statements of the Bible, as well as to the latest hypotheses of science, that it will evoke passionate denial. The occultists, however, know that the traditions of esoteric philosophy must be the right ones, simply because they are the most logical and reconcile every difficulty. Besides, we have the Egyptian books of Thoth and the Book of the Dead, and the Hindu Puranas with their seven Manus, as well as the Chaldean-Assyrian accounts, whose tiles mention seven primitive men, or atoms, the real meaning of which name may be ascertained by means of the Kabbalah. Those who know anything of the Samothracian mysteries will also remember that the generic name of the Kabiri was the Holy Fires, which created on seven localities of the island of Electria, or Samothrace, the Kabiri born of the Holy Lemnos, the island sacred to Vulcan. According to Pindar, this Kabir, whose name was Adamus, was in the traditions of Lemnos, the type of the primitive man born from the bosom of the earth. He was the archetype of the first males in the order of generation, and was one of the seven Arctonos ancestors or progenitors of mankind. If coupling with this fact that the Samothrace was colonized by the Phoenicians, and before them by the mysterious Pelagians, who came from the east, we also remember the identity of the mystery gods of the Phoenicians, Chaldeans, and Israelites. It will be easy to discover whence came also the confused account of the Nokian deluge. It has become undeniable of late that the Jews, who obtained their primitive ideas about creation from Moses, who had them from the Egyptians, compiled their Genesis and first cosmogenic traditions, when written by Ezra and others from the Chaldean Akkadian account. It is therefore sufficient to examine the Babylonian and Assyrian cuneiform and other inscriptions to find also therein, scattered here and there, 
not only the original meaning of the name Adam, Admi, or Adami, but also the creation of seven Adams, or roots of men, born of Mother Earth, physically, and of the divine fire of the progenitors, spiritually, or astrally. The Assyriologists, ignorant of the esoteric teachings, could hardly be expected to pay any greater attention to the mysterious and ever-recurring number seven on the Babylonian cylinders than they pay to it on finding it in Genesis and the rest of the Bible. Yet the numbers of the ancestral spirits and their seven groups of human progeny are on the cylinders, notwithstanding the dilapidated condition of the fragments, and are to be found as plainly as they are in Pymander and in the book of the Concealed Mystery of the Kabbalah. In the latter, Adam Kadmon is the Sephirothal tree, as also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that tree, says verse 32, hath around it seven columns, or palaces, of the seven creative angels operating in the spheres of the seven planets on our globe. As Adam Kadmon is a collective name, so also is the name of the man Adam, says George Smith in his Chaldean account of Genesis. The word Adam used in these legends for the first human being is evidently not a proper name, but is only used as a term for mankind. Adam appears as a proper name in Genesis, but certainly in some passages is only used in the same sense as the Assyrian word. Moreover, neither the Chaldean nor the biblical deluge, with their stories of Zisuthras and Noah, is based on the universal or even on the Atlantean delusions, recorded in the Indian allegory of Vevasvata Manu. They are the exoteric allegories based on the esoteric mysteries of Samothrace. If the older Chaldeans knew the esoteric truth concealed in the Puranic legends, the other nations were only aware of the Samothracian mystery and allegorized it. They adapted it to their astronomical and anthropological, or rather phallic, notions. Samothrace is known historically to have been famous in antiquity for a deluge, which submerged the country and reached the top of the highest mountains, an event which happened before the age of the Argonauts. It was overflowed very suddenly by waters from the Exine, which had been regarded up to that time as a lake but the Israelites had, moreover, another legend upon which to base their allegory, the legend of the deluge that transformed the present Gobi Desert into a sea for the last time, some 10,000 or 12,000 years ago, and which drove many Noahs and their families to the surrounding mountains. As the Babylonian accounts are only now restored from hundreds of thousands of broken fragments, the mound of Koinak, having yielded from Layard's excavations upwards of 20,000 fragments of inscriptions, the proofs here cited are comparatively scanty, yet such as they are, they corroborate almost every one of our teachings. Three most certainly, at the very least. These are, number one, that the race which was the first to fall into generation was a dark race, Zalmat Kakadi, which they call the Adamu, or dark race and that Sarku, or the light race, remained pure for a long while subsequently. 
Number two, that the Babylonians recognized two principal races at the time of the fall, the race of the gods, the ethereal doubles of the Petris, having preceded these two. This is Sir H. Rawlinson's opinion. These races are our second and third root races. Number three, that these seven gods, each of whom created a man or group of men, were the gods imprisoned or incarnated. These gods were the god Z, the god Ziku, noble life, director of purity, the god Mirku, noble crown, savior from death of the gods, imprisoned, and the creator of the dark races which his hand has made, the god Libzu, wise among the gods, the god Nisi, the god Suhab, and He or Sa, their synthesis, the god of wisdom and of the deep, identified with Oenis Dagon at the time of the fall, and called collectively the Demiurge or creator. There are two creations, so-called, in the Babylonian fragments, and as Genesis has adhered to this, we find its first two chapters distinguished as the Elohite and the Yehovite creations. Their proper order, however, is not preserved in these or in any other exoteric accounts. Now these creations, according to the occult teachings, refer respectively to the formation of the primordial seven men by the progenitors the Petris, or Elohim, and to that of the human groups after the fall. All this will be examined in the light of science and comparisons drawn from the scriptures of all the ancient nations, the Bible included as we proceed. Meanwhile, before we turn to the anthropogenesis of the prehistoric races, it may be useful to agree upon the names to be given to the continents in which the four great races which preceded our Adamic race, were born, lived, and died. Their archaic and esoteric names were many, and varied with the language of the nation which mentioned them in its annals and scriptures. That which in the Vendidad, for instance, is referred to as Iryana, Veo, wherein were born the original Zoroaster. It is called, in the Puranic literature, Zveta Dvipa, Mount Meru, the abode of Vishnu, etc., and in the secret doctrine it's simply named the Land of the Gods, under their chiefs, the spirits of this planet. Therefore, in view of the possible, and even very probable confusion, that may arise, it is considered more convenient to adopt for each of the four continents constantly referred to, a name more familiar to the cultural reader. It is proposed then to call the first continent, or rather the first terra firma, on which the first race was evolved by the divine progenitors. Number one, the imperishable sacred land. The reason for the name is that it is stated that this imperishable sacred land never shared the fate of the other continents, because it is the only one whose destiny it is to last from the beginning to the end of the Manvantara throughout each round. It is the cradle of the first man and the dwelling of the last divine mortal, chosen as Shishta for the future seed of humanity. Of this mysterious and sacred land very little can be said, except perhaps according to a poetical expression 
in one of the commentaries that the pole star has its watchful eye upon it from the dawn to the close of the twilight of a day of the great breath. Number two, the Hyperborean. This will be the name chosen for the second continent, the land which stretched out its promontories southward and westward from the North Pole to receive the second race and comprise the whole of what is now known as Northern Asia. Such was the name given by the oldest Greeks to the far-off and mysterious region, whither their tradition made Apollo, the Hyperborean, travel every year. Astronomically, Apollo is, of course, the sun, who, abandoning his Hellenic sanctuaries, loved to annually visit his faraway country, where the sun was said to never set for one half of the year. But historically, or better, perhaps ethnologically and geologically, the meaning is different. The land of the Hyperboreans, the country that extended beyond Boreas, the frozen-hearted god of snows and hurricanes, who loved to slumber heavily on the chain of Mount Ripias, was neither an ideal country, as surmised by the mythologists, nor yet a land in the neighborhood of Scythia and the Danube. It was a real continent, a bona fide land, which knew no winter in those early days, nor have its sorry remains more than one night and day during the year even now. The nocturnal shadows never fall upon it, said the Greeks, for it is the land of the gods, the favorite abode of Apollo, the god of light, and its inhabitants are his beloved priests and servants. This may be regarded as poeticized fiction now, but it was poeticized truth then. Number three, Lemuria, the third continent we propose to call Lemuria. The name is an invention or an idea of Mr. P. L. Sclater, who between 1850 and 1860 asserted on zoological grounds the actual existence in prehistoric times of a continent which he showed to have extended from Madagascar to Ceylon and Sumatra. It included some portions of what is now Africa, but otherwise this gigantic continent, which stretched from the Indian Ocean to Australia, has now wholly disappeared beneath the waters of the Pacific, leaving here and there only some of its highland tops which are now islands. Mr. A. R. Wallace, the naturalist, writes Mr. Charles Gould, extends the Australia of tertiary periods to New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, and perhaps to Fiji, and from its marsupial types infers a connection with the northern continent during the secondary period. The subject is treated at length elsewhere. Number four, Atlantis. Thus, we name the fourth continent. It would be the first historical land where the traditions of the ancients to receive more attention than they have hitherto. The famous island of Plato, of that name, was but a fragment of this great continent. Number five, Europe. The fifth continent was America, but as it is situated on the Antidotes. The fifth continent was America, but, as it is situated on the Antipodes, it is Europe and Asia Minor, almost coeval with it, which are generally referred to by the Indo-Aryan occultists as the fifth. In their teaching followed the appearance of the continents in their geological and geographical order. 
then this classification would have to be altered. But as the sequence of the continents is made to follow the order of evolution of the races, from the first to the fifth, our Aryan root race, Europe, must be called the fifth great continent. The secret doctrine takes no account of islands and peninsulas, nor does it follow the modern geographical distribution of land and sea. Since the day of its earliest teachings and the destruction of the great Atlantis, the face of the earth has changed more than once. There was a time when the delta of Egypt and northern Africa belonged to Europe, before the formation of the Straits of Gibraltar, and a further upheaval of the continent entirely changed the face of the map of Europe. The last serious change occurred some 12,000 years ago, and was followed by the submersion of Plato's little Atlantic island, which he calls Atlantis, after its parent continent. Geography was part of the mysteries in days of old, says the Zohar. The secrets of land and sea were divulged to the men of secret science, but not to the geographers. The claim that physical man was originally a colossal pre-tertiary giant, and that he existed 18 million years ago, must of course appear preposterous to admirers of and believers in modern learning. The whole posse comitatus of biologists will turn away from the conception of this third race titan of the secondary age, a being fit to fight successfully with the then gigantic monsters of the sea, air, and land. So his forefathers and ethereal prototypes of the Atlantean had little need to fear that which could not hurt them. The modern anthropologist is quite welcome to laugh at our titans as he laughs at the biblical Adam, and as the theologian laughs at the former Pithecoid ancestor. The occultists and their severe critics may feel that they pretty well mutually squared their accounts by this time. Occult sciences claim less and give more, at all events, than either Darwinian anthropology or biblical theology. Nor ought the esoteric chronology to frighten anyone, for with regard to figures, the greatest authorities of the day are as fickle as and uncertain as the Mediterranean waves. As regards the duration of the geological periods alone, the learned men of the Royal Society are all hopelessly at sea and jump from one million to five hundred million of years with the utmost ease, as will be seen more than once during this comparison. Take one instance for our present purpose, the calculations of Mount Kroll. Whether according to this authority, 2.5 million years represent the time since the beginning of the tertiary age, or the Eocene period, as an American geologist makes him say, or whether, again, Mr. Kroll allows 15 millions since the beginning of the Eocene period, as quoted by an English geologist. Both sets of figures cover the claims made by this secret doctrine. For assigning as the latter does from 4 to 5 million years between the incipient and the final evolution of the fourth root race on the Lemuro-Atlantean continents, 1 million years for the fifth, or Aryan race, to the present date, and about 850,000 since the submersion of the last large peninsula of the Great Atlantis. All this may have easily taken place within the 15 million years conceded by Mr. Kroll to the tertiary age. But chronologically speaking, the duration of the period is of secondary importance, 
as we have, after all, certain American scientists to fall back upon. These gentlemen, unmoved by the fact that their assertions are called not only dubious but absurd, yet maintain that man existed so far back as in the secondary age. They have found human footprints on rocks on that formation, and furthermore, M. D. Quatrefages finds no valid scientific reason why man should not have existed during the secondary age. The ages and periods in geology are, in sober truth, purely conventional terms, as they are still barely delineated, and moreover no two geologists or naturalists agree as to the figures. Thus, there is a wide margin for choice offered to the occultist by the learned fraternity. Shall we take for one of our supports Mr. T. Mellard Reed? This gentleman, in a paper on limestone as an index of geological time, read by him in 1878 before the Royal Society, claims that the minimum time required for the formation of the sedimentary strata and the elimination of the calcareous matter is in round numbers 600 million years. Or shall we ask support for our chronology from Mr. Darwin's works, wherein, according to his theory, he demands for the organic transformations from 300 to 500 million years. Sir Charles Lyell and Professor Houghton were satisfied with placing the beginning of the Cambrian age at 200 and 240 millions of years ago, respectively. Geologists and zoologists claim the maximum time, though Mr. Huxley at one time placed the beginning of the incrustation of the earth at 1,000 million years ago and would not surrender a millennium of it. But the main point for us lies not in the agreement or disagreement of the naturalists as to the duration of geological periods, but rather in their perfect accord on one point, for a wonder, and this a very important one. They all agree that during the Miocene age, whether one or ten million years ago, Greenland and even Spitsbergen, the remnants of our second and hyperborean continent, had an almost tropical climate. Now the pre-Homeric Greeks had preserved the vivid tradition of this land of the eternal sun, whither their Apollo journeyed yearly. Science tells us, during the Miocene age, Greenland, in N latitude 70 degrees, developed an abundance of trees, such as the yew, the redwood, the sequoia, allied to the Californian species, beeches, plains, willows, oaks, poplars, and walnuts, as well as a mangolia and a zamia. In short, Greenland had southern plants unknown to northern regions. And now arises this natural question. If the Greeks in the days of Homer knew of a hyperborean land, i.e. a blessed land beyond the reaches of Boreas, the god of winter and of the hurricane, an ideal region which the later Greeks and their writers have vainly tried to locate beyond Scythia, a country where nights were short and days long, and beyond that a land where the sun never set and the palm grew freely. If they knew of all this, who then told them of it? In their day, and for ages previously, Greenland must certainly have already been covered with perpetual snows, with never-thawing ice just as it is now. Everything tends to show that the land of the short nights and long days was Norway or Scandinavia, beyond which was the blessed land of the eternal light and summer. 
For the Greeks to know of this, the tradition must have descended to them from some people more ancient than themselves, who were acquainted with those climactic details of which the Greeks themselves could know nothing. Even in our day, science suspects that beyond the polar seas, at the very circle of the Arctic Pole, there exists a sea which never freezes and a continent which is evergreen. The archaic teachings and also the Puranas, for one who understands their allegories, contain the same statements. Suffice then for us the strong probability that during the Miocene period of modern science, at a time when Greenland was an almost tropical land, there lived a people now unknown to history. Note. The reader is requested to bear in mind that the following sections are not strictly consecutive in order of time. In part one, the stanzas which form the skeleton of the exposition are given, and certain important points commented upon and explained. In the subsequent section of parts two and three, various additional details are gathered, and a fuller explanation of the subject is attempted. Part one, Anthropogenesis. Twelve stanzas from the Book of Jan, with commentaries. In primeval times, a maiden, beauteous daughter of the ether, passed for ages her existence in the great expanse of heaven. Seven hundred years she wandered. Seven hundred years she labored. Ere her firstborn was delivered. Ere a beauteous duck descending hastens toward the water mother. Lightly on the knees she settles, finds a nesting place befitting, where to lay her eggs in safety, lays her eggs within at pleasure. Six, the golden eggs she lays there, then a seventh, an egg of iron. Calivella, Crawford. Anthropogenesis. From the stanzas of Jan, stanza one. Number one, the law which turns the fourth is servant to the laws of the seven. They who revolve, driving their chariots around their Lord, the one eye of our world. His breath gave life to the seven. It gave life to the first. Two, said the earth, Lord of the shining face, my house is empty. Send thy sons to people this wheel. Thou hast sent thy seven sons to the Lord of Wisdom. Seven times doth he see thee nearer to himself. Seven times more doth he feel thee. Thou hast forbidden thy servants, the small rings, to catch thy light and heat, thy great bounty to intercept on its passage. Send now to thy servant the same. 3. Said the Lord of the Shining Face, I shall send thee a fire when thy work is commenced. Raise thy voice to the other lokas. Apply to thy father, the Lord of the Lotus, for his sons. Thy people shall be under the rule of the fathers. Thy men shall be mortals. The men of the Lord of Wisdom, not the sons of Soma, are immortal. Seize thy complaints. Thy seven skins are yet on thee. Thou art not ready. Thy men are not ready. 
for, after great throws, she cast off her old three and put on her new seven skins and stood in her first one. Stanza two. Five. The wheel world for thirty crores more. It constructed rupas, soft stones that hardened, hard plants that softened, visible from invisible, insects and small lives. She shook them off her back whenever they overran the mother. After thirty crores, she turned around. She lay on her back, on her side. She would call no sons of heaven. She would ask no sons of wisdom. She created from her own bosom. She evolved watermen, terrible and bad. 6. The watermen, terrible and bad. She herself created from the remains of others. From the dross and slime of her first, second, and third, she formed them. The Gianni came and looked. The Gianni from the bright father-mother. From the white regions they came, from the abodes of the immortal mortals. 7. Displeased they were. Our flesh is not there. No fit rupas for our brothers of the fifth. No dwellings for the lives. Pure waters, not turbid, they must drink. Let us dry them. 8. The flames came, the fires with the sparks. The night fires and the day fires. They dried out the turbid dark waters. With their heat they quenched them. The laws of the high. The Lamaean of below came. They slew the forms which were two and four-faced. They fought the goat men and the dog-headed men and the men with fishes' bodies. 9. Mother Water, the Great Sea, wept. She arose, she disappeared in the moon, which had lifted her, which had given her birth. 10. When they were destroyed, Mother Earth remained bare. She asked to be dried. Stanza 3. 11. The Lord of the Lords came. From her body he separated the waters, and that was heaven above, the first heaven. Twelve, the great Kohans called the lords of the moon, of the airy bodies. Bring forth men, men of your nature. Give them their forms within. She will build coverings without. Males, females they will be. Lords of the flame also. Thirteen, they went each on his allotted land. Seven of them, each on his lot. The lords of the flame remained behind. They would not go. They would not create. Stanza 4. 14. The seven hosts, the will-born lords, propelled by the spirit of life-giving, separate men from themselves, each on his own zone. 15. Seven times seven. Shadows of future men were born, each of his own color and kind, each inferior to his father. 
the fathers, the boneless, could give no life to beings with bones. Their progeny were Buddha, with neither form nor mind. Therefore, they are called the Chaya race. 16. How are the Manusia born? The Manus with minds, how are they made? The fathers called to their help their own fire, which is the fire that burns in earth. The spirit of the earth called to help the solar fire. These three produced in their joint efforts a good rupa. It could stand, walk, run, recline, or fly. Yet it was still a chaya, a shadow with no sense. 17. The breath needed a form. The fathers gave it. The breath needed a gross body. The earth molded it. The breath needed the spirit of life. The solar loss breathed it into its form. The breath needed a mirror of its body. We gave it our own, said the Yanis. The breath needed a vehicle of desires. It has it, said the drainer of waters. But breath needs a mind to embrace the universe. We cannot give that, said the fathers. I never had it, said the spirit of the earth. The form would be consumed were I to give it mine, said the great fire. Man remained an empty, senseless Buddha. Thus have the boneless given life to those who became men with bones in the third. Stanza 5, 18. The first were the sons of Yoga, their sons the children of the yellow father and the white mother. 19. The second race was the product by budding and expansion, the asexual from the sexless. Thus was Olanu the second race produced. 20. Their fathers were the self-born. The self-born, the chaya from the brilliant bodies of the lords. The fathers, the sons of twilight. 21. When the race became old, the old waters mixed with the fresher waters. When its drops became turbid, they vanished and disappeared in the new stream, in the hot stream of life. The outer of the first became the inner of the second. The old wing became the new shadow, and the shadow of the wing. Stanza 6. 22. Then the second evolved the egg-born, the third. The sweat grew, its drops grew, and the drops became hard and round. The sun warmed it, the moon cooled and shaped it, the wind fed it until its ripeness. The white swan from the starry vault overshadowed the big drop. The egg of the future race, the man-swan of the later third. First male, female, then man and woman. 23. The self-born were the chayas, the shadows from the bodies of the sons of twilight. Neither water nor fire could destroy them. Their sons were. Stanza 7. 24. The sons of wisdom, the sons of night, ready for rebirth, came down. They saw the vile forms of the first third. We can choose, said the Lord. We have wisdom. 
Some entered the chayas. Some projected a spark. Some deferred till the fourth. From their own rupa, they filled the kama. Those who entered became arhats. Those who received but a spark remained destitute of knowledge. The spark burned low. The third remained mindless. Their evas were not ready. These were set apart among the seven. They became narrow-headed. The third were ready. In these we shall dwell, said the lords of the flame and of the dark wisdom. 25. How did the Manasseh, the son of wisdom, act? They rejected the self-born. They are not ready. They spurned the sweat-born. They are not quite ready. They would not enter the first egg-born. 26. When the sweat-born produced the egg-born, the twofold, the mighty, the powerful with bones, the lords of wisdom said, Now shall we create. 27. The third race became the Vahan of the lords of wisdom. It created sons of will and yoga. By Kriya Shakti, it created them, the holy fathers, ancestors of the Arhats. Stanza 8. 28. From the drops of sweat, from the residue of the substance, matter from dead bodies of men and animals of the wheel before, and from cast-off dust the first animals were produced. 29. Animals with bones, dragons of the deep, and flying sarpas were added to the creeping things. They that creep on the ground got wings. They of the long necks in the water became the progenitors of the fowls of the air. 30. During the third, the boneless animals grew and changed. They became animals with bones. Their chayas became solid. 31. The animals separated the first. They began to breed. The twofold man separated also. He said, Let us as they. Let us unite and make creatures. They did. 32. And those that which had no spark took huge she-animals unto them. They begat upon them dumb races. Dumb they were themselves, but their tongues untied. The tongues of their progeny remained still. Monsters they bred, a race of crooked, red-haired, covered monsters going on all fours. A dumb race to keep the shame untold. Stanza 9. 33. Seeing which, the laws who had not built men wept, saying, 34. The Amanasa have defiled our future abodes. This is karma. Let us dwell in the others. Let us teach them better, lest worse should happen. They did. 35. Then all men became endowed with manas. They saw the sin of the mindless. 36. The fourth race developed speech. 37. The one became two. Also all the living and creeping things that were still one. Giant fish, birds, and serpents with shell heads. Stanza 10. 38. Thus, two by two on the seven zones, the third race gave birth to the fourth. The sura became a sura. 39. The first on every zone was moon-colored. 
the second yellow like gold, the third red, the fourth brown, which became black with sin. The first seven human shoots were all of one complexion. The next seven began mixing. 40. Then the third and fourth became tall with pride. We are the kings, we are the gods. 41. They took wives fair to look upon, wives from the mindless, the narrow-headed. They bred monsters, wicked demons, male and female, also cadeau with little minds. 42. They built temples for the human body, male and female they worshipped. Then the third eye acted no longer. Stanza 11. 43. They built huge cities, of rare earths and metals they built. Out of the fires vomited, out of the white stone of the mountains and of the black stone, they cut their own images in their size and likeness and worshipped them. 44. They built great images, nine yatis high, the size of their bodies. Inner fires had destroyed the land of their fathers. The water threatened the fourth. 45. The first great waters came. They swallowed the seven great islands. 46. All holy saved, the unholy destroyed. With them most of the huge animals produced from the sweat of the earth. Stanza 12. 47. Few remained, some yellow, some brown, and black, and some red remained. The moon colored were gone forever. 48. The fifth produced from the holy stock remained. It was ruled over by the first divine kings. 49. The serpents who redescended, who made peace with the fifth, who taught and instructed it. Commentaries on the twelve stanzas and their terms, according to their numeration in stanzas and shlokas. Stanza 1. Beginnings of sentient life. Number 1. The law, or spirit of the earth. Number 2. Invocation of the earth to the sun. Number 3. What the sun answers. And number 4. Transformation of the earth. Number 1. The law, A, which turns the fourth, is servant to the law of the seven, B. They who revolve, driving their chariots around their Lord, the one eye of our world. His breath gave life to the seven. It gave life to the first, C. They are all dragons of wisdom, adds the commentary, D. A, law, is the ancient term in trans-Himalayan regions for spirit, any celestial or superhuman being, and it covers the whole series of heavenly hierarchies from Archangel or Dhyani down to an angel of darkness or terrestrial spirit. B. This expression shows in plain language that the spirit guardian of our globe, which is the fourth in the chain, is subordinate to the chief spirit or god of the seven planetary genii or spirits. As already explained, the ancients had, in their creel of gods, Seven chief mystery gods, whose leader was, exoterically, the visible sun, or the eighth, and esoterically, the second logos, the demiurge. The seven, who have now, in the Christian religion, become the seven eyes of the Lord, 
were the regents of the seven chief planets, but these were not reckoned according to the enumeration devised later by people who had forgotten, or who had an inadequate notion of the real mysteries, and included neither the sun, the moon, nor the earth. The sun was the chief, exoterically, of the twelve great gods, or zodiacal constellations, and esoterically the Messiah, the Christos, the subject anointed by the great breath, or the one, surrounded by his twelve subordinate powers, also subordinate in turn to each of the seven mystery gods of the planets. The seven higher make the seven laws create the world, states a commentary, which means that our earth, to leave aside the rest, was created or fashioned by terrestrial spirits, the regents being simply the supervisors. This is the first germ of that which grew later into the tree of astrology and astrolatry. The higher ones were the cosmocratories, the fabricators of our solar system. This is borne out by all the ancient cosmogenies, such as those of Hermes, of the Chaldeans, of the Aryans, of the Egyptians, and even of the Jews. The signs of the zodiac, the sacred animals, or heaven's belt, are as much the Bani Alhim, sons of the god, or of Elohim, as the spirits of the earth, but they are prior to them. Soma and Sin, Isis and Diana, are all lunar gods or goddesses, called the fathers and mothers of our earth, which is subordinate to them. But these in their turn are subordinate to their fathers and mothers, the latter being interchangeable and varying with each nation. The gods and their planets, such as Jupiter, Saturn, Bel, Brihaspati, etc. C. His breath gave life to the seven, refers as much to the sun, who gives life to the planets, as to the high one, the spiritual sun, who gives life to the whole cosmos. The astronomical and astrological keys opening the gate leading to the mysteries of theogony can be found only in the later glossaries, which accompany the stanzas. In the apocalyptic shlokas of the archaic records, the language is as symbolical, if less mythical, than in the Puranas. Without the help of the later commentaries, compiled by generations of adepts, it would be impossible to understand the meaning correctly. In the ancient cosmogenies, the visible and the invisible worlds are the double links of one in the same chain. As the invisible logos, with its seven hierarchies, each represented or personified by its chief angel or rector, form one power, the inner and the invisible, so in the world of forms, the sun and the seven chief planets constitute the visible and active potency, the latter hierarchy being, so to speak, the visible and objective logos of the invisible, and, except in the lowest grades, ever subjective angels. Thus, to anticipate a little by way of illustration, every race in its evolution is said to be born under the direct influence of one of the planets. Race, the first receiving the breath of life from the sun, as will be seen later on, while the third humanity, those who fell into generation, or from androgynes, became separate entities, one male and the other female is said to be under the direct influence of Venus, the little sun, 
in which the solar orb stores his light. The summary of the stanzas in Volume 1 showed the genesis of gods and men taking rise in and from one and the same point, which is the one universal, immutable, eternal, and absolute unity. In its primary manifested aspect, we have seen it become one, in the sphere of objectivity and physics, primordial substance and force, centripetal and centrifugal, positive and negative, male and female, etc. And number two, in the world of metaphysics, the spirit of the universe, or cosmic ideation, called by some the Logos. This Logos is the apex of the Pythagorean triangle. When the triangle is complete, it becomes the tetractus, or the triangle in the square, and is the dual symbol of the four-lettered tetragrammaton in the manifested cosmos, and of its radical triple ray in the unmanifested, its numenon. Put more metaphysically, the classification given here of cosmic ultimates is more one of convenience than of absolute philosophical accuracy. At the commencements of the great Manbantara, Parabrahman manifests as Mulapakriti and then as the Logos. This Logos is equivalent to the unconscious universal mind, etc., of Western pantheists. It constitutes the basis of the subject side of manifested being and is the source of all manifestations of individual consciousness. Mulapakriti, or primordial cosmic substance, is the foundation of the object side of things the basis of all objective evolution and cosmogenesis. Force, then, does not emerge with primordial substance from parabramic latency. It is the transformation into energy of the supraconscious thought of the Logos, infused, so to speak, into the objectification of the latter out of potential latency in the one reality. Hence spring the wondrous laws of matter. Hence the primal impress, so vainly discussed by Bishop Temple. Force thus is not synchronous with the first objectification of Mulapakriti. Nevertheless, as apart from it, the latter is absolutely and necessarily inert, a mere abstraction. It is unnecessary to weave too fine a cobweb of subtleties as to the order of succession of the cosmic ultimates. Force succeeds Mulapakriti, but minus force, Mulapakriti is for all practical intents and purposes non-existent. The heavenly man or tetragrammaton, who is the protogenos, Tikkun, the firstborn from the passive deity, and the first manifestation of that deity's shadow, is the universal form and idea, which engenders the manifested logos. Adam Kadmon, or the four-lettered symbol in the Kabbalah, of the universe itself, also called the second Logos. The second springs from the first and develops the third triangle, from the last of which the lower host of angels, men, are generated. It is with this third aspect that we shall deal at present. The reader must bear in mind that there is a great difference between the Logos and the Demiurgus for one is spirit and the other is soul. Or as Dr. Wilder has it, Dianoia and Logos are synonymous, Nous being superior and closely in affinity to Ayabov, 
one being the superior apprehending, the other the comprehending, one noetic and the other phrenic. Moreover, man was regarded in several systems as the third logos. The esoteric meaning of the word logos, speech or word, verbum, is the rendering an object expression, as in a photograph of the concealed thought. The logos is the mirror reflecting divine mind, and the universal is the mirror of the logos, though the latter is the S of that universe. As the logos reflects all in the universe of pleroma, so man reflects in himself all that he sees and finds in his universe, the earth. It is the three heads of the Kabbalah, um, intra, octrum, et alarum, super, altrum. Every universe, world, or planet has its own logos, says the doctrine. The sun was always called by the Egyptians the eye of Osiris, and was himself the logos, the first begotten, or light made manifest to the world, which is the mind and divine intellect of the concealed. It is only by the sevenfold ray of this light that we can become cognizant of the Logos through the Demiurge, regarding the latter as the creator of our planet and everything pertaining to it, and the former as the guiding force of that creator, good and bad at the same time, the origin of good and the origin of evil. This creator is neither good nor bad per se, but its differentiated aspects in nature make it assume one or the other character. With the invisible and the unknown universes disseminated through space, none of the sun gods had anything to do. The idea is expressed very clearly in the books of Hermes and in every ancient folklore. It is symbolized generally by the dragon and the serpent, the dragon of good and the serpent of evil represented on earth by the right and the left-hand magic. In the epic poem of Finland, the Kalevela, the origin of the serpent of evil is given. It is born from the spittle of Soyater, and endowed with a living soul by the principle of evil, Hissi. A strife is described between the two. The thing of evil, the serpent or sorcerer, the Ati, the dragon or the white magician, Lemminkainen. The latter is one of the seven sons of Ilmater, the virgin daughter of the air, she who fell from the heaven into the sea before creation, i.e. spirit transformed into the matter of sensuous life. There is a world of meaning and occult thought in the following few lines. Admirably rendered by Dr. J. M. Crawford of Cincinnati, the hero Lemminkainen. Hews the wall with might of magic. Break the palisade in pieces, hews to Adam's seven pickets, chops the serpent wall to fragments. Where the monster little heating pounces with his mouth of venom at the head of Lemminkainen, but the hero quick recalling speaks the master's words of knowledge, words that came from distant ages, words his ancestors had taught him. D. In China, the men of Fohi, or the heavenly man, are called the twelve Tianhong, the twelve hierarchies of Dianis, or angels with human faces, and dragon bodies, the dragon standing for divine wisdom or spirit, 
and they create men by incarnating themselves in seven figures of clay, earth and water, made in the shape of these Tianhong, a third allegory. The twelve acers of the Scandinavian Eddas do the same. In the secret catechism of the Druses of Syria, a legend which is repeated word for word by the oldest tribes about and around the Euphrates, men were created by the sons of God, who descended on earth. And after gathering seven mandragoras, they animated the roots, which forth became men. All these allegories point to one and the same origin, to the dual and triple nature of man. Dual as female and male, triple as being of spiritual and psychic essence within, and of material fabric without. Two, said the earth, Lord of the shining face, my house is empty, send thy sons to the people this wheel. Thou hast sent thy seven sons to the Lord of wisdom. A. Seven times doth he see the nearer to himself, seven times more doth he feel thee. B. Thou hast forbidden thy servants, the small rings, to catch thy light and heat, thy great bounty to intercept on its passage. Send now to thy servant the same. A. The Lord of Wisdom is Mercury, or Buddha. And B, the modern commentary explains the words as a reference to a well-known astronomical fact, that Mercury receives seven times more light and heat from the sun than the Earth, or even the beautiful Venus, which receives but twice the amount falling on our insignificant globe. Whether the fact was known in antiquity may be inferred from the prayer of the Earth spirit, to the sun as given in the text, the sun, however, refuses to people the globe, as it is not ready to receive life as yet. Mercury, as an astrological planet, is still more occult and mysterious than Venus. It is identical with the Mazdean Mithra, the genius or god, established between the sun and the moon, the perpetual companion of the sun of wisdom. Posineus shows him as having an altar in common with Jupiter. He had wings to express his attendance upon the sun in its course, and he was called the Nuntius and Sun-Wolf, Solaris Luminous Particeps. He was the leader and evocator of souls, the great magician and the hierophant. Virgil depicts him as taking his wand to evoke from the Orcus the souls plunged therein. Tum Virgam Capit. Hac animus il evocatorco. He is the golden-colored Mercury, whom the Hierophants forbade to name. He is symbolized in Grecian mythology by the one of the dogs, Vigilance, which one watch over the celestial flock, occult wisdom, or Hermes Anubis, or again, Agathodemon. He is the Argus watching over the earth, mistaken by the latter for the sun itself. It is through the intercession of Mercury that the Emperor Julian prayed to the occult sun every night. For as says Vosius, all the theologians assert that Mercury and the sun are one. He was the most eloquent and the most wise of all gods. Which is not to be wondered at, since Mercury is in such close proximity to the wisdom and the word of God, the sun, 
that he was confused with both. Volsius here utters a greater occult truth than he suspected. The Hermes of the Greeks is closely related to the Hindu Sarama and Saramiya, the divine watchman, who watches over the golden flock of stars and solar rays. In the clearer words of the commentary, the globe propelled onward by the spirit of the earth and his six assistants gets all its vital forces, life, and powers through the medium of the seven planetary yanis from the spirit of the sun. They are his messengers of light and life. Like each of the seven regions of the earth, each of the seven firstborn, the primordial human groups, receives its light and life from its own special dhyani, spiritually, and from the palace, house, the planet, of that dhyani physically. So with the seven great races to be born on it. The first is born under the sun, the second under Brihaspati, Jupiter, the third under Lohitanga, Mars, the fiery-bodied and also under Venus, or Shukra, the fourth under Soma, the moon, our globe, also the fourth sphere being born under from the moon, and Shani, Saturn, the Kriya, Lokana, evil-eyed, and the Asita, the dark, the fifth under Buddha, Mercury. So also with man and every man, every principle in man, each gets its specific quality from its primary, the planetary spirit. Therefore, every man is a septinate, or a combination of principles, each having its origin in a quality of that special jhani. Every active power or force of the earth comes to her from one of the seven lords. Light comes through Shukra, Venus, who receives a triple supply and gives one-third of it to the earth. Therefore, the two are called twin sisters. But the spirit of the earth is subservient to the lord of Shukra. Otherwise, men represent the two globes, one over, the other under the double sign. The primeval swastika bereft of its four arms, or the cross. The double sign is, as every student of occultism knows, the symbol of the male and the female principles in nature, of the positive and the negative, for the swastika, or Double cross is all that and much more. All antiquity ever since the birth of astronomy imparted to the fourth race by one of the kings of the divine dynasty. And also of astrology represented Venus in its astronomical tables as the globe poised over a cross and the earth as a globe under a cross. The esoteric meaning of this is the earth fallen into generation or into the production of its species through sexual union. But the later Western nations have not failed to give it quite a different interpretation. They explain the sign through their mystics, guided by the light of the Latin church, as meaning that our earth and all on it were redeemed by the cross, while Venus, otherwise Lucifer or Satan, was trampling upon it. Venus is the most occult, powerful, and mysterious of all the planets, the one whose influence upon, and relation to, the earth is most prominent. In exoteric Brahmanism, Venus, or Shukra, a male deity, is the son of Brigu, one of the Prajapati and a Vedic sage, and is Datya Guru, or the priest's instructor of the primeval giants. The whole history of Shukra in the Puranas refers to the third and fourth races. 
As says the commentary, it is through Shukra that the double ones, the hermaphrodites of the third root race, descended from the first sweat-born. Therefore, it is represented under the symbol, a circle with a line through it, the circle and diameter, during the third race, and a circle with a line horizontal and vertical during the fourth race. This needs explanation. The diameter, when found isolated in a circle, stands for female nature, for the first ideal world, self-generated and self-impregnated by the universally diffused spirit of life, thus also referring to the primitive root race. It becomes androgynous as the races and all else on earth develop into their physical forms, and the symbol is transformed into a circle with a diameter from which runs a vertical line expressive of female and male, not separated as yet, the first and earliest Egyptian Tau, after which it becomes a cross, or male-female separated and fallen into generation. Venus, the planet, is symbolized by the sign of a globe over a cross, which shows the former as presiding over the natural generation of man. The Egyptians symbolized Ankh, life, by the unsated cross, or circle with a cross under, which is only another form of Venus, Isis, and meant esoterically that mankind and all animal life had stepped out of the divine spiritual circle and had fallen into physical male and female generation. This sign from the end of the third race has the same phallic significance as the tree of life in Eden. Anuki, a form of Isis, is the goddess of life, and Ankh was taken by the Hebrews from the Egyptians. It was introduced into the language by Moses, one learned in the wisdom of the priests of Egypt, with many other mystical words. The word Ankh in Hebrew, with the personal suffix, means my life, my being, which is the personal pronoun Anuki, from the name of the Egyptian goddess Anukai. In one of the most ancient catechisms of southern India, Madras Presidency, the hermaphrodite goddess Adonari has the ansated cross, the swastika, the male and female sign, right in the center part to denote the pre-sexual state of the third race. Vishnu, who is now represented with a lotus growing out of his navel, or the universe of Brahma evolving out of the central point, Nara, is shown in one of the oldest carvings as double-sexed, Vishnu and Lakshmi, standing on a lotus leaf floating on the water, the water rising in a semicircle and pouring through the svatika, the source of generation or the descent of man. Pythagoras calls Shukra Venus the sole altar, the other sun, the seven palaces of the sun, that of Lucifer Venus is the third in Christian and Jewish Kabbalah the Zohar making of it the abode of Samael. According to the occult doctrine, this planet is our Earth's primary and its spiritual prototype, hence Shukra's car. Venus Lucifer's is said to be drawn by an ogdode of Earth-born horses, while the steeds of the chariots of the other planets are different. Every sin committed on Earth is felt by the Ushana's Shukra, the guru of the Datyas is the guardian spirit of the earth and men. 
Every change on Shukra is felt on and reflected by the earth. Shukra, or Venus, is thus represented as the preceptor of the Dechas, the giants of the fourth race, who, in the Hindu allegory, at one time obtained the sovereignty of all of the earth and defeated the minor gods. The titans of the Western allegory are also closely connected with Venus Lucifer, which was identified by later Christians with Satan. And as Venus, equally with Isis, was represented with cow's horns on her head, the symbol of mystic nature, one convertible with and significant of the moon. Since all these were lunar goddesses, the configuration of this planet is now placed by theologians between the horns of the mystic Lucifer. It is owing to the fanciful interpretation of the archaic tradition, which states that Venus changes simultaneously, geologically, with the earth, that whatever takes place on one takes place on the other, and that many and great were their common changes. It is for these reasons that St. Augustine repeats it, applying the several changes of configuration, color, and even of the orbital paths to that theologically woven character of Venus Lucifer. He even goes so far in his pious fancy as to connect the last changes of the planet with the Nokian and mythical deluge allowed to have taken place 1796 BC. As Venus has no satellites, it is stated allegorically that Ashpujit, this planet, adopted the Earth, the progeny of the moon, who overgrew its parent and gave much trouble a reference to the occult connection between the two. The regent of the planet, Shukra, loved his adopted child so well that he incarnated as Ushanas and gave it perfect laws, which were disregarded and rejected in later ages. Another allegory in the Harivansha is that Shukra went to Shiva and asked him to protect his pupils, the Dechis and the Asuras, from the fighting gods and that to further his object, he performed a yoga rite, imbibing the smoke of chaff with his head downwards for a thousand years. This refers to the great inclination of the axis of Venus, amounting to 50 degrees, and to its being enveloped in eternal clouds. But it relates only to the physical constitution of the planet. It is with its regent, the informing Yan Chohan, the occult mysticism has to deal. The allegory which states that Vishnu was cursed by Shukra to be reborn seven times on the earth as a punishment for killing his Shukra's mother is full of occult philosophical meaning. It does not refer to Vishnu's avatars, since these number nine, the tenth being still to come, but to the races on earth. Venus, or Lucifer, also Shukra, and Ushanas, the planet, is the light-bearer of our earth in both the physical and mystic sense. The Christians knew it well in early times, since one of the early popes of Rome is known by his pontiff name as Lucifer. Every world has its parent star and sister planet. Thus, earth is adopted child and younger brother of Venus. But its inhabitants are of their own kind, all sentient, complete beings full septenary men or higher beings, are furnished in their beginnings with forms and organisms in full harmony with the nature and state of the sphere they inhabit. The spheres of being, or centers of life, 
which are isolated nuclei breeding their men and their animals, are numberless. Not one has any resemblance to its sister companion or to any other of its special progeny. All have double physical and spiritual nature. The nucleos are eternal and everlasting. The nuclei, periodical and finite. The nucleoles form part of the absolute. They are the embrasures of that black, impenetrable fortress, which is forever concealed from human or even dionic sight. The nuclei are the light of eternity escaping therefrom. It is that light which condenses into the forms of the lords of being, the first and the highest of which are collectively Yivatma or Pratyagatma, which is said figuratively to issue from Paramatma. It is the logos of the Greek philosophers appearing at the beginning of every new Manvantara. From these downwards formed the ever-consolidating waves of that light, which becomes on the objective plane gross matter. Proceed with numerous hierarchies of the creative forces, some formless, others having their own distinctive form, others again the lowest, elementals, having no form of their own, but assuming every form according to the surrounding conditions. Thus there is but one absolute apadi, basis in the spiritual sense, from on and in which are built for manvantaric purposes the countless basic centers on which proceed the universal, cyclic, and individual evolutions during that active period. The informing intelligences which animate these various centers of being are referred to indiscriminately by men beyond the great range, as the Manus, the Rishis, the Petris, the Prajapati, and so on, and as Dhyana's Buddhas, the Chohans, the Melhas, the Fire Gods, Bodhisattvas, and others on this side. The truly ignorant call them gods, the learned profane, the one god, and the wise. The initiates honor in them only the manvantaric manifestations of that which neither our creators, the John Chohans, nor their creatures can ever discuss or know anything about. The absolute is not to be defined, and no mortal or immortal has ever seen or comprehended it during the periods of existence. The mutable cannot know the immutable, nor can that which lives perceive absolute life. Therefore man cannot know higher beings than his own progenitors, nor shall he worship them, but he ought to learn how he came into the world. Number seven, the fundamental figure among all other figures in every national religious system, from cosmogony down to man, must have its raison d'etre. It is found among the ancient Americans as prominently as among the archaic Aryans and Egyptians. The question will be fully dealt with in the second part of this volume. Meanwhile, a few facts may be given here. Says the author of the Sacred Mysteries among the Mayas and the Quiches 11,500 years ago. Seven seems to have been sacred number par excellence among all civilized nations of antiquity. Why? This query has never been satisfactorily answered. Each separate people has given a different explanation according to the peculiar tenets of their exoteric religion. That it was the number of numbers for those initiated to the sacred mysteries, there can be no doubt. Pythagoras calls it the vehicle of life, containing body and soul, since it is formed of a quaternary 
that is, wisdom and intellect, and a trinity, or action and matter. The Emperor Julian in Matrium, and in Oratio, expresses himself thus, Were I to touch upon the initiation into our secret mysteries, which the Chaldees backized, respected the seven-rayed god, lighting up the soul through him, I should say things unknown to the rabble, very unknown, but well known to the blessed theurgists. And who that is acquainted with the Puranas, the Book of the Dead, the Zendavesta, the Assyrian tiles, and finally the Bible, and has observed the constant occurrence of the number seven in these records of people from the remotest times upwards unconnected and so far apart, can regard as a coincidence the following fact given by the same explorer of ancient mysteries. Speaking of the prevalence of seven as a mystic number among the inhabitants of the western continent of America, he adds, it is not less remarkable, for it frequently occurs in the Popovoe. We find it besides in the seven families, said by Sahagun and Clavigaro, to have accompanied the mystical personage named Votan, the reputed founder of the great city of Nachan, identified by some with Palenque, and the seven caves from which the ancestors of the Nahots are reported to have emerged, in the seven cities of Cibola, described by Coronado and Niza, in the seven Antilles, in the seven heroes, and we are told escaped the deluge. Heroes, moreover, whose number is found the same in every deluge story, from the seven rishis who were saved with Vevesvatu Manu, down to Noah's Ark, into which beasts, fowls, and living creatures were taken by sevens. Thus we see figures 1357 as perfect, because thoroughly mystic, numbers playing a prominent part in every cosmogony and evolution of living beings. In China, 1357 are called celestial numbers. In the canonical Book of Changes, Yi King or Transformation, as in Evolution. The explanation of it becomes evident when one examines the ancient symbols. All these are based upon and start from the figures given from the archaic manuscript in the Proem of Volume 1. The symbol of evolution and fall into generation or matter is reflected in the old Mexican scriptures or paintings, as it is in the Kabbalistic Sephiroth and the Egyptian Tau. Examine the Mexican MS at MSS Brit Museum 9789. You will find it in a tree whose trunk is covered with ten fruits ready to be plucked by a male and female, one on each side of it, while from the top of the trunk two branches shoot horizontally to the right and left, thus forming a perfect Tau. The ends of the two branches, moreover, each bearing a triple bunch with a bird, the bird of immortality, Atma, or the divine spirit, sitting between the two and thus making the seventh. This represents the same idea as the Sephirothal tree, ten in all, yet when separated from its upper triad, leaving seven. These are the celestial fruits, the ten, or circle with a line, ten born out of the two invisible male and female seeds, making up the twelve, or the dodecahedron of the universe. The mystic system contains the central point, the three, or triangle, the five, star, and the seven, square with triangle in it, or again, the six-pointed star, the triangle, and the square, and the synthesizing point, and the interlaced double triangles. This is for the world of the archetypes, 
the phenomenal world receives its culmination and the reflex of all in man. Therefore, he is the mystic square in his metaphysical aspect, the tetractus, and becomes the cube on the creative plane. His symbol is the cube unfolded and six becoming seven, or the cross, three crossways, the female, and four vertically. And this is man, the culmination of the deity on earth, whose body is the cross of flesh, on, through, and in which he is ever crucifying and putting to death the divine logos, or his higher self, says every philosophy and cosmogony. The universe hath a ruler, rulers collectively, set over it, which is called the word, logos. The fabricating spirit is its queen, which two are the first power after the one. These are the spirit and nature, which two form our illusory universe. The two inseparables remain in the universe of ideas, so long as it lasts, and then merge back into Parabrahman, the one ever changeless. The spirit, whose essence is eternal, one and self-existent, emanates a pure ethereal light, a dual light not perceptible to the elementary senses. According to the Puranas, the Bible, the Sefer Yetzirah, the Greek and Latin hymns, the Book of Hermes, the Chaldean Book of Numbers, the esotericism of Lao Tse, and everywhere else. In the Kabbalah, which explains the secret meaning of Genesis, this light is the dual man, or the androgyne, rather sexless, angels, whose generic name is Adam Kadmon. It is they who complete man, whose ethereal form is emanated by other divine but far lower beings, who solidify the body with clay or the dust of the ground, an allegory indeed, but as scientific as any Darwinian evolution and more true. The author of The Source of Measures says that the foundation of the Kabbalah and all of its mystic books is made to rest upon the ten Sephiroth, which is a fundamental truth. He shows those ten Sephiroth, or the ten numbers, as follows. It's a circle with two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and a line going through the middle. The circle is the knot. Its vertical diameter line is the first or primal one, the word or logos from which spring the two, the three, and so on, to nine, the limit of the digits. The ten is the first divine manifestation, which contains every possible power of exact expression of proportion, the sacred yod. By this Kabbalah, we are taught that these Sephiroth were the numbers or emanations of the heavenly light, 20,612 to 6,561. They were the ten words. DBRIM 41224, the light of which they were the flux was the heavenly man, the Adam KDM, the 144 minus 144, and the light by the New Testament or covenant 41224 created God, just as by the Old Testament God, Alhim 31415 creates light 206122 now, there are three kinds of light in occultism, as in the Kabbalah. Number one, the abstract and absolute light, which is darkness. Number two, the light of the manifested unmanifested, called by some the Logos. And number three, the latter light reflected in the Jian Chohans, the minor Logai, the Elohim collectively, who in their turn 
shed it on the objective universe. But in the Kabbalah, re-edited and carefully adjusted to fit the Christian tenets by the Kabbalists of the 13th century, the three lights are described as, number one, the clear and penetrating that of Jehovah, number two, reflected light, and number three, light in the abstract. This light, abstractly taken in a metaphysical or symbolical sense, is Alhim, Elohim God, while the clear penetrating light is Jehovah. The light of Alhim belongs to the world in general, in its allness and general fullness, but the light of Jehovah is that pertaining to the chiefest production, man whom this light penetrated to and made. The author of the Source of Measures pertinently refers the reader to Inman's ancient faiths embodied in ancient names, II 648. There, an engraving of the Vesca Pisces, Mary, and the female emblem, copied from a rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which was printed at Venice in 1542. And therefore, as Inman remarks, with a license from the Inquisition, and consequently Orthodox, will show the reader what the Latin Church understood by this penetrating power of light and its effects. How sadly disfigured, applied as they were to the grossest anthropomorphic conceptions, have under Christian interpretation become the noblest and grandest, as the most exalted ideas of the deity of the Eastern philosophy. The occultists in the East call this light Deva Prakriti, and in the West the light of Christos. It is the light of the Logos, the direct reflection of the ever-unknowable on the plane of universal manifestation. But here is the interpretation thereof given by the modern Christians from the Kabbalah, as declared by the author just cited, to the fullness of the world in general with its chiefest content, the man the term Elohim Jehovah applies. In extracts from Sohar, the Reverend Dr. Castle, the Kabbalists, to prove that the Kabbalah sets forth the doctrine of the Trinity, among other things, says Jehovah is Elohim, Alhim. By three steps God, Alhim and Jehovah become the same, and though separated each and together they are of the same one. Similarly, Vishnu becomes the sun, the visible symbol of the impersonal deity. Vishnu is described as striding through the seven regions of the universe in three steps. But with the Hindus, this is an exoteric account, a surface tenet and an allegory, while the Kabbalists give it out as the esoteric and final meaning. But to proceed, now light, as shown, is 20612-6561, as the proper enunciation of the integral and numerical relation of diameter to circumference of a circle. God, Alhim, that is 31415-1, to a modified form of the above is the reduction of this, so as to obtain a standard unit one as the basis, in general, of all calculation and all mensuration. But for the production of animal life and for a special time measure, or the lunar year, that influence which causes conception and embryotic development, the numbers of the Jehovah measure, the man even Jehovah measure, Vs 1132355 have to be specialized. But this last ratio is but a modified form of light. 
or 20612 to 6561 as a pi value, being only one variation of the same. That is, 20612 to 6561 is 31415 to 1, and 355 to 113 is 31415, or all him or God. And in such a manner, that one can be made to flow into and be derived from the other. And these are the three steps by which the unity and sameless can be shown of the divine names. That is, the two are but variations of the same ratio, viz. that of pi. The object of this comment is to show the same symbolic measuring use for the Kabbalah, as taught, with that of the three covenants of the Bible and with that of masonry as just noticed. First, then, the Sephiroth is described as light, that is, they themselves are a function of, indeed the same as, the manifestation of the Ein Sof. And they are so from the fact that light represents the ratio 20612 to 6561, as part of the words DBRIM 41224, or as to the word Debar 206 equals 10 cubits. Light is so much the burden of the Kabbalah as to explaining the Sephiroth that the most famous book on the Kabbalah is called Sohar or Light. In this, we find expressions of this kind. The infinite was entirely unknown and diffused no light before the luminous point violently broke through into vision. When he first assumed the form of the crown or the first sephirah, he caused nine splendid lights to emanate from it, which, shining through it, diffused a bright light in all directions. That is, these nine with his one, which was the origin as above of the nine, together made the ten, that is, the circle with the line, or the circle with the X, or the sacred ten numbers, or Sephiroth, or Jod, and these numbers were the light, just as the Gospel of St. John, God, Alhim, 31415-1, to was that light, 20612-6561, by which light all things were made. In the Sefer Yetzirah, or number of creation, the whole process of evolution is given out in numbers. In its 32 paths of wisdom, the number three is repeated four times, and the number four five times. Therefore, the wisdom of God is contained in numbers, Sephrim or Sephiroth, for Sephir or S-P-H-R, when unvoweled, means to cipher. And therefore, also, we find Plato stating that the deity geometrizes in fabricating the universe. The Kabbalistic book, the Sefer Yetzirah, opens with a statement of the hidden wisdom of Alhim in Sephrim, i.e. the Elohim in the Sephiroth. In 30 and 2 paths, hidden wisdom established Yah, I-H-V-H, Sabawath, Elohai of Israel, Alhim of life, El of grace and mercy, exalted, uplifted, dweller on high and King of Everlasting, and his name Holy, in three Sephrim, viz. B-S-P-H-R, V-S-P-H-R, V-S-I-P-H-O-R. 
Mr. Ralston Skinner goes on to say, this comment sets forth the hidden wisdom of the original text by hidden wisdom. That is, by the use of words carrying a special set of numbers and a special phraseology, which will set forth the very explanatory system which we find it to fit so accurately in the Hebrew Bible. In setting forth his scheme to enforce it and to finish out his detailed exposition in a general postulate, viz. the one word, Sephrim, Sephiroth, of the number Jezerah, the author explains the separation of this word in three subordinate ones, a play upon a common word, S-PH-R, or number. The prince Al-Chazari says to the rabbi, I wish now that thou wouldest impart to me of the chiefest or leading principles of natural philosophy, which, as thou sayest, were in former times worked out by them, the ancient wise ones, to which the rabbi makes answer, to such principles appertains the number of creation of our race father Abraham, that is, Abraham and Abraham, or Numbers 41224 and 41252. He then says that this book of number treats of teaching the alhimness and oneness through DBRIM, these the numbers of the word words. That is, it teaches the use of the ratio 31415 to 1 through 41224, which last is the description of the Ark of the Covenant, was divided into two parts by two tables of stone on which these DBRIM or 41224 were written or engraved, or 20612 times 2. He then comments on these three subordinately used words and takes care as to one of them to make the comment. And Alhim 31415 to 1 said, Let there be light, 20612 to 6561. The words as given in the text are below in Hebrew. And the rabbi, in commenting upon them, says, It teaches the alhimness, 31415, and oneness, the diameter to alhim, through words, dbrim equals 41224, by which, on the one side, there is infinite expression in heterogeneous creations, and on the other, a final harmonic tendency to oneness, which, as everyone knows, is the mathematical function of pi of the schools, which measures, weighs, and numbers the stars of heaven, and yet resolves them back into the final oneness of the universe through words. Their final accord perfects itself into that oneness that ordains them, and which consists in the Hebrew word. That is, the rabbi in his first comment leaves the yod, or I, out of one of the words, whereas afterwards he restores it again. If we take the values of those subordinate words, we find them to be 340, 340, and 346. Together, these are 1026. And the division of the general word into these has been to produce these numbers, which by Tumura may be changed in various ways for various purposes. The reader is asked to turn to stanza. 4 of Volume 1, Shloka 3 and Commentary, to find that the 347 and the thrice 7, or 1065, the number of Jehovah, is the number of the 21 Prajapati mentioned in the Mahabharata, or the three Sephrim, words in ciphers or figures. 
And this comparison between the creative powers of archaic philosophy and the anthropomorphic creator of exoteric Judaism, since the exotericism of the Jews shows its identity with the secret doctrine, will lead the student to perceive and discover that, in truth, Jehovah is but a lunar and generation God. It is a fact well known to every conscientious student of the Kabbalah that the deeper he dives into it, the more he feels convinced that unless the Kabbalah, or what is left of it, is read by the light of the Eastern esoteric philosophy. Its study leads only to the discovery that, on the lines traced by exoteric Judaism and Christianity, the monotheism of both is nothing more exalted than ancient astrology now vindicated by modern astronomy. The Kabbalists never cease to repeat that primal intelligence can never be understood. It cannot be comprehended, nor can it be located, therefore it has to remain nameless and negative. Hence the Ein Sof, the unknowable and unnameable, as it could not be made manifest, was imagined as emanating, manifesting powers. It is then with its emanations alone that human intellect has to and can deal. Christian theology, having rejected the doctrine of emanations and replaced them with direct conscious creations of angels and the rest out of nothing, now finds itself hopelessly stranded between supernaturalism or miracle and materialism. An extra-cosmic god is fatal to philosophy. An intra-cosmic deity i.e. spirit and matter inseparable from each other, is a philosophical necessity. Separate them and that which is left is a gross superstition under a mask of emotionalism. But why geometrize, as Plato has it, why represent these emanations under the form of an immense arithmetical table? The question is well answered by the author just cited, who says, Mental perception, to become physical perception, must have the cosmic principle of light, and by this our mental circle must become visible through light, or for its complete manifestation the circle must be that of physical visibility, or light itself. Such conceptions, thus formulated, become the groundwork of the philosophy of the divine manifesting in the universe. This is philosophy. It is otherwise when we find the rabbi in Al-Chazari saying that under S-P-H-R is to be understood calculating and weighing of the created bodies. For the calculation, by means of which a body must be constructed in harmony or symmetry, by which it must be in construction rightly arranged and made to correspond to the object in design, consists at last in number, extension, mass, weight coordinate relation of movements than harmony of music must consist altogether by number that is sph-r by sipor sephor it is to be understood the words of alhim 206 minus 1 of 31415 to 1 whereunto joins or adapts itself to the design to the frame or form of construction for example it was said let light be. The work became as the words were spoken, that is, as the numbers of the work came forth. This is materializing the spiritual without scruple. But the Kabbalah was not always so well adapted to anthropomonotheistic conceptions. Compare this with any of the six schools of India. For instance, in Kapila's Sankhya philosophy, unless 
Allegorically speaking, Purusha mounts on the shoulders of Prakriti. The latter remains irrational, while the former remains inactive without her. Therefore, nature in man must become a compound of spirit and matter before he becomes what he is. And the spirit latent in matter must become awakened to life and consciousness gradually. The monad has to pass through its mineral, vegetable, and animal forms before the light of the logos is awakened in the animal man. Therefore, till then, the latter cannot be referred to as man, but has to be regarded as a monad imprisoned in ever-changing forms. Evolution, not creation, by means of words is recognized in the philosophies of the East, even in their exoteric records. Ex-Orient Looks Even the name of the first man in the Mosaic Bible had its origin in India. Professor Max Muller's negation notwithstanding, the Jews got their Adam from Chaldea, and Adam Adami is a compound word and therefore a manifold symbol, and proves the occult dogmas. This is no place for philosophical disquisitions, but the reader may be reminded that the words Ad and Adi mean in Sanskrit the first. In Aramean, one, Ad Ad, the only one, in Assyrian, father, whence Akkad, or Father Creator, and once the statement is found correct, it becomes rather difficult to confine Adam to the Mosaic Bible alone and to see therein simply a Jewish name. There is frequent confusion in the attributes and genealogies of the gods in their theogenies, the Alpha and the Omega of the records of that symbolical science, as given to the world by the half initiated writers Brahmanical and Biblical. Yet there could be no such confusion made by the earliest nations, the descendants and pupils of the divine instructors, for both the attributes and the genealogies were inseparably linked with cosmogonical symbols, the gods being the life and animating soul principle of the various regions of the universe. Nowhere and by no people was speculation allowed to range beyond those manifested gods. The boundless and infinite unity remained with every nation, a virgin, forbidden soil, untrodden by man's thought, untouched by fruitless speculation. The only reference made to it was the brief conception of its diastolic and systolic property, of its periodical expansion, or dilation and contraction. In the universe, with all its incalculable myriads of systems and worlds disappearing and reappearing in eternity, the anthropomorphized powers, or gods, their souls, had to disappear from view with their bodies. As our catechism says, the breath returning to the eternal bosom which exhales and inhales them. Ideal nature, the abstract space in which everything in the universe is mysteriously and invisibly generated, is the same female side of the procreative power in nature in the Vedic as in every other cosmogony. Aditi is Sephira, and the Sophia of the Gnostics, and Isis, the virgin mother of Horus. In every cosmogony behind and higher than the creative deity, there is a superior deity, a planner, an architect, of whom the creator is but the executive agent. And still higher, over and around, within and without, there is the unknowable and the unknown, the source and cause of all these emanations. It thus becomes easy to account for the reason why Adam Adami is found in the Chaldean scripture, certainly earlier than the Mosaic books. 
In Assyrian, Ad is the father, and in Aramean, Ad is one, and Ad-Ad, the only one, while Ak is in Assyrian creator. Thus, Ad-Am-Ak-Admon became Adam-Kadmon in the Kabbalah, Zohar, meaning as it did the one son of the divine father, or the creator. For the words Am and Om mean at one time in nearly every language the divine or the deity. Thus, Adam Kadmon and Adam Adami came to mean the first emanation of the father, mother, or divine nature, and literally the first divine one. And it is easy to see that Ad Argat, or Astrit, the Syrian goddess, the consort of Adon, the lord god of Syria, or the Jewish Adonai, and Venus, Isis, Ister, Mylitta, Eve, etc., are identical with the Aditi and Vak of the Hindus. They are all the mothers of all living and of the gods. On the other hand, cosmically and astronomically, all the male gods become at first sun gods, then theologically the sons of righteousness and the Logi, all symbolized by the sun. They are all protogoni, firstborn and microprosopi. With the Jews, Adam Kadmon was the same as Athamaz, Tamaz, or the Adonis of the Greeks, the one with and of his father, the father becoming during the later races Helios, the son, as Apollo Carneos, for instance, who was the son born. Osiris, Ormazd, and so on were all followed by and found themselves transformed later on to still more earthly types, such as Prometheus, the crucified of Mount Kajbi, Hercules, and so many others, sun gods and heroes, until all of them came to have no better significance than phallic symbols. In the Zohar, it is said, man was created by the Sephiroth, Elohim, Javeh, also, and they engendered by common power the earthly Adam. Therefore, in Genesis, the Elohim say, Behold, man is become as one of us. But in Hindu cosmogony, or creation, Brahma Prajapati creates Viraj and the Rishis, spiritually. Therefore, the latter are distinctly called the mind-born sons of Brahma. And this specified mode of engendering precluded every idea of phallicism, at any rate in the earlier human nations. This instant well illustrates the respective spirituality of the two nations. Number three, said the Lord of the shining face, I shall send thee a fire when thy work is commenced. Raise thy voice to the other locus. Apply to thy father, the Lord of the lotus. A, for his sons, thy people shall be under the rule of the fathers. Thy men shall be mortals, the men of the Lord of wisdom. Not the sons of Soma are immortal. Seize thy complaints, B. Thy seven skins are yet on thee. Thou art not ready. The men are not ready. C. A. Kumadapati is the moon, the earth's parent, in his region of Somaloka. Though the Petris, or fathers, are sons of the gods, elsewhere sons of Brahma and even Rishis, they are generally known as the lunar ancestors. B. Petrapati is the lord or king of the Petris, Yama, the god of death, and the judge of mortals. 
the men of Buddha, Mercury, are metaphorically immortal through their wisdom. Such is the common belief of those who credit every star or planet with being inhabited. And there are men of science, Mr. Flammarion among others, who believe in this fervently, on logical as well as astronomical data. The moon, being an inferior body even to the earth, to say nothing of other planets, the terrestrial men, produced by her sons, the lunar men or ancestors, from her shell or body cannot be immortal. They cannot hope to become real, self-conscious, and intelligent men unless they are finished, so to say, by other creators. Thus, in the Puranic legend, the sun of the moon, Soma, is Buddha, Mercury, the intelligent and the wise, because he is the offspring of Soma, the regent of the visible moon, not of Indu, the physical moon. Thus, Mercury is the elder brother of the earth, metaphorically, his stepbrother, so to say, the offspring of spirit, while she, the earth, is the progeny of the body. These allegories have a deeper and more scientific meaning, astronomically and geologically, than our modern physicists are willing to admit. The whole cycle of the first war in heaven, the Tarakamaya, is as full of philosophical as of cosmogonical and astronomical truths. One can trace therein the biographies of all the planets by the history of their gods and rulers. Yashanas, Shukra or Venus, the bosom friend of Soma and the foe of Brihaspati, Jupiter, the instructor of the gods, whose wife Tara or Taraka had been carried away by the moon Soma, of whom he begat Buddha, took also an active part in this war against the gods and forthwith was degraded into a demon. Asura, deity, and so he remains to this day. Here the word men refers to the celestial men, or what are called in India the Pitares or Petris, the fathers, the progenitors of men. This does not remove the seeming difficulty in view of modern hypothesis of the teaching, which shows these progenitors or ancestors creating the first human atoms out of their sides as astral shadows. And though it is an improvement on Adam's rib, still geological and climactic difficulties will be brought forward. Such, however, is the teaching of occultism. C. Man's organism was adapted in every race to its surroundings. The first root race was as ethereal as ours is material, the progeny of the seven creators, who evolved the seven primordial atoms surely required no purified gases to breathe and live upon. Therefore, however strongly the impossibility of this teaching may be urged by the devotees of modern science, the occultist maintains that the case was stated eons of years before even the evolution of the Lemurian, the first physical man, which took place 18 million years ago. Archaic scriptures teaches that the commitments of every local kalpa, or round, the earth is reborn and preliminary evolution is described in one of the books of Jan and the commentaries thereon in this wise. As the human jiva, monad, when passing into a new womb, gets recovered with a new body, so does the jiva and the earth. It gets a more perfect and solid covering with each round after re-emerging once more from the matrix of space into objectivity. This process is attended, of course, by the throes of the new birth or geological convulsions. 
The only reference to it is contained in one verse of the volume of the book of Jan before us where it says, Number four, after great throws, she cast off her old three and put on her new seven skins and stood in her first one. This refers to the growth of the earth, whereas in the stanza treating in the first round, it is said in the commentary, after the changeless, avikara, immutable nature, essence, sadikarupa, had awakened and changed, differentiated into a state of causality, avyakta, and from cause, karana, had become its own discrete effect, vyaka. From invisible, it became visible, the smallest of the small, the most atomic of atoms, or anayansam, anayasam, became one and the many, ikan charupa, and producing the universe produced also the fourth loka, or earth, in the garland of the seven lotuses. The achyuta then became the chuta. The earth is said to cast off her old three skins because this refers to the three preceding rounds she has already passed through, the present being the fourth round out of the seven. At the beginning of every new round, after a period of obscuration, the earth, as do also the other six earths, casts off, or is supposed to cast off, her old skins as the serpent does. Therefore, she is called in the Atariya Brahmana, the Sarpa Rajni, the queen of the serpents, and the mother of all that moves. The seven skins, in the first of which she now stands, refers to the seven geological changes which accompany and correspond to the evolution of the seven root races of humanity. Stanza 2, which speaks of this round, begins with a few words of information concerning the age of our earth. The chronology will be given in its place. In the commentary appended to the stanza, two personages are mentioned, Narada and Asuramya, especially the latter. All the calculations are attributed to this archaic celebrity, and what follows will make the reader superficially acquainted with some of these figures. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.